You're listening to Alumni Allowed, a new podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career and the advice they would give current students. This series is sponsored by the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development at the Graduate Center. I'm Anders Wallace, a PhD candidate in the Anthropology program at the Graduate Center. In this episode, I sit down with Jonathan Hill, who is an Excelsior Fellow in the Policy and Planning Department at the New York State Department of Transportation. Jonathan earned his PhD in History at the Graduate Center in 2018. In this episode, John and I talk about the joys of using research to make an impact on civic infrastructure, the surprising benefits of asking quote-unquote stupid questions, and how to negotiate the changing terms of your professional identity when you carry your PhD to work outside the ivory tower. So my name is Jonathan Hill. I'm currently an Excelsior Fellow at the Department of Transportation for the state of New York here in Albany. And I uh, was a recent grad of the PhD program in history at the CUNY Graduate Center. Uh, The Excelsior Fellowship, can you tell me a bit more about what the fellowship involves? Sure, so it is a two-year program Um, It's only open to people who have finished an upper-level degree, so it's mostly people who have recently finished law school, MBAs, and MPAs are kind of the core of who is in it. But they do allow uh, PhDs, which are, it's kind of a unique experience for them. In the current cohort, I'm the only PhD student. The fellowship, it's open for people from different backgrounds, like legal, law school, and MBAs. You are one of the few PhDs. So in the current cohort, I'm the only PhD, which it required some special sort of accommodations because I'm sort of the canary in the coal mine on this, seeing how PhDs fit. But it's been an excellent experience, I think, probably among all the fellows. I have one of the best experiences so far in the program. Uh, What it is is you interview, in my case, at a couple different agencies based on your preferences, your background, and what you might be able to contribute. You almost interview as a new hire. They're actually, in most cases, looking for you to begin work right away. It's sort of an apprenticeship program. And uh, after you find your placement, you uh, begin. It's good in the sense that you begin as a new employee, so you begin working right away. It's not sort of a hands-off sort of watching situation, but it's also good in the sense that you're not actually a new hire. So you don't come on with a list of jobs that are required by your job description. You really get to sort of move in, sort of play around with everything that the office does, move in and out of different work groups, and really get an experience for uh, the agency and what they do. So the, the idea of the program is meant to be a leadership training program, and that's really how they're doing it for now, is move into an agency, jump right in for two years, and find a way to fit. And in most cases, uh, you're able to stay after the two years. So I've been in six months, and we're already talking about ways to stay on at the DOT. So it's gone well so far. That's really interesting set up for the program as this apprenticeship model. Can you tell me more about the fellowship in terms of how you see it playing into your own career goals? Sure. It's actually, well, it's it's probably good for me to talk about because these things kind of are in flux at all times, right? Yeah moving here and moving there and the way the academic market is right now it's always hard to tell sort of what's happening really when i finished my phd i had every intent of waiting on an academic job and i did you know two years on the market 
uh, two cycles on the market, I would say, and had interviews and did well in a couple different places, but it's extremely tight right now. So I didn't end up with a long-term position and this sort of came up at the same time. I said, I'm gonna give it a chance. And I sort of began here on the Excelsior Fellowship not tentatively, but I would say that I planned on committing to two years and wasn't really sure what would happen after that point. It's been a far better experience than I anticipated. And there's a, there's a variety of factors for it, but they all sort of revolve around the extent of the need that there is where I am. I stepped into a situation expecting to, especially with a background in history, which there's no titles at the DOT that require history as a background or even allow it. So I expected to step into a situation where I was defending or making the case for my contribution and working really hard at sort of working my way in. And I found the opposite to be true, that the minute I stepped in there and started sort of demonstrating research ability, writing ability, ability to navigate complex institutions, which sounds simple, but it's not as simple as it seems. Yeah. I found I started getting pulled in different directions by different groups. And now it's seven months in, it's at the point where I'm having to pick and choose the way that I contribute because the demand is so great. So I found that really um, edifying to be able to step into a situation where you're working every single day, you're doing work that really matters and that you can see it. You know, I'm working on a policy for things that you're seeing every day from the Kosciuszko Bridge down in New York City to, I mean, everything, everywhere there's transportation in the state, we're working on it. Wow. So the way I see it fitting in, it's it's early in this program now, but I, I wasn't planning on committing and staying when I came in. And the calculus has changed since I've been here, I would say, um, not to a full commitment on either side, but it's going to make it very hard to to want to leave when I'm finished here, especially considering they're already trying to accommodate me here. So wow. My one concern was, would I still be able to, you know, be a researcher and be able to have that side of life, right, that you've developed, you know, all the skills that you work on as a PhD. And I've found it, it's absolutely, not only am I researching already every day, but the room to sort of continue the research is out there externally, but internally as well. I mean, we produce reams of information internally at the DOT that never get seen again, which could certainly benefit from a careful eye taking a look. So I'm from a town of 400 people in central New York. I don't know anybody here that's from that town. Uh -huh. and after being here about a month, I learned that our recent retiree, top executive in the environmental department here at DOT was also from that town. So I just reached out to him just to make a connection and met him informally and, and I found out in a short time talking to him, he had a PhD from Yale and also came out of a research environment, spent his whole career here and said, you wanna do research, you can absolutely do it here. Was uh, one of those moments which, which made me realize, you know, I, I can see a way here for applying all the skills I've developed. It's, it's not a step down, it's a step in a different direction. The needs are different, the environment's different. The workday is different, but the ability to contribute and apply the skills you develop is as great, certainly. So, wow. So, long way around answering your question. I'm not sure, right? But uh, it's a work in progress, and, and I've had a great experience so far. If there's any students that are thinking about this, whether in the Excelsior program or just thinking about the types of jobs, especially in public service outside of research, uh -huh. I'm happy to talk to anybody that, uh, that has questions about it to the extent that I can. Well, that's great, John. So my experience is that when you get to the end of the PhD, everybody's sort of trained to be thinking about the academic environment. It never goes away. I mean, I'm still there, you know, and I'm going to be going the next round. But I think when students begin to think about non-academic careers, there's a certain level of trepidation on the one. There's two things happening. One, 
it's a deviation from sort of your training or the way you've been trained to think about yourself. You know, you're sort of cultivating an academic identity the entire time you're in the academy in the walls. And at the same time, you're kind of daunted by the fact that you don't know what does it even mean to consider a non-academic career. It's sort of a whole other thing. And, you know, there's public sector work, there's private sector work, there's all these different directions. So to the extent that, you know, you can navigate those two things at the same time, you can find some really rewarding things on the other side, especially, as I said before, in this sort of current academic environment in which people are retiring and they're not replacing in jobs where adjuncts outnumber tenured professors at schools. It's a really unique space. And, and I think um, oftentimes senior faculty don't even know, they're not familiar enough with the environment the students face now to even speak to it in some cases. Those are great points. I was also curious to ask you about your academic background as far as what did you research in your dissertation? And was that also a big departure in terms of subject matter of your research when you moved over to the DOT? I'll sort of walk you through the process and kind of how I got to here. I started, uh, I, I was a jour- journalist in a former career. I did my undergraduate in journalism at Boston University and was in journalism for a few years and switched over to history in 2009. I, I did a, a master's at City College and enjoyed the master's enough to really commit to doing the PhD. So I continued my studies at the Graduate Center. As a high school student, I'd gone to Nicaragua and done some humanitarian work there and then was an exchange student in Argentina in high school. And so I always had the Latin America background and always was interested in sort of relations between U.S. and Latin America. So that was sort of my entry into studies at the Graduate Center. I applied as both a, a U.S. history and Latin American history and was accepted as a Latin Americanist uh, with Herman Bennett in the um, Department of History. In my experience, there's always been only a couple Latin Americanists at the Graduate Center, which uh-huh. You know, it has its minuses in that your cohort's a little smaller, but the major positive is that you get to study with everybody. You study mm-hmm. with the Europeans, you study with the Latin Americanists, and you get used to, I mean, my entire career has been an interloper, it sort of feels like. So I've, I was very comfortable in that environment, uh, and you get to pick up a little bit of everything. So yeah. sort of through that process, I studied a little bit in the geography department, and I cast a net broadly for sort of dissertation project, and I got really taken with environmental history and history of water and sort of uh, did a couple of research papers focusing on that field, the way it intersects with geography and actually, you know, anthropology is sort of the common thread through a lot of these things. A lot of the work of David Harvey, which you get to study, you know, directly at the Graduate Center about, you know, built environments. So I sort of ported a lot of what I brought there over to Latin America and cast my net broadly in Latin America to sort of see what was there and found out that there wasn't a whole lot from the U.S. side. There's some Latin Americanists doing this kind of work. From there, pitched a, a Fulbright project. I was lucky enough to be accepted. Um, so we spent a year in Mexico City working at the Historic Water Archive, uh, which wow. is one of the few I've ever heard. There's actually an archive dedicated only to federal water projects. So I was lucky enough to spend a year doing research there. I published a dissertation called Powerhouse Chihuahua, which is about uh, the very early hydroelectric industry in northern Mexico and Chihuahua, which is um, kind of at the cutting edge of of hydroelectric development in the 19-teens, beginning in 1912, some of the earliest projects, uh, which which corresponds to some of the earliest hydroelectric projects in North America and Europe at the time. Very little was known about it, so that was sort of my intervention there, was sort of exploring this, you know, multinational project of Canadians, Americans, and Mexicans building very large hydroelectric dams in northern Mexico. 
So that obviously is not what I'm doing today, but it introduced me to a sort of deep theoretical and conceptual introduction into the built environment, large technical systems, how policy intersects with politics and sort of social needs. Um, and that has really been the thread that I pitched to the Excelsior Fellowship and it's followed me through. Now I'm working in transportation, but a, a lot of what I'm doing here at DOT is not, I'm doing a lot of writing, but in doing a lot of writing, what I'm doing is talking to a lot of groups about what they work on, right? This, talking to finance, talking to contracts, talking to policy and planning, talking to the rail guys, talking to the people that work in public transit. And in writing, asking a lot of clarifying questions, getting to know what they do, looking at their documents, and really trying to um, communicate across groups and agencies. Even within one group, one, one agency, as big as the DOT, you have a lot of different priorities in different groups. and. There's a way in which I'm not going to say that all historic training and all anthropological training in PhD programs prepares you for that, but there's a way in which it can, depending on the way that you're approaching it. So that's yeah. sort of been my trajectory into getting here. And I found that the PhD training, especially in certain fields, um, when you come in with a, for example, training, working in archives, Stepping to a desk that's covered in old publications from a program is not daunting for you in a way that it is to another employee, right? Yeah. <laughs> to mine through 50s old reports and see what's important here in an efficient way. Um, that skill set you don't develop being necessarily a state worker, but you can bring that in. It allows you to get your hands on a lot of levers very quickly, especially when people understand that you have a mastery over this content in a short amount of time. I feel there's a way in which, especially if you've navigated successfully the CUNY system all the way through a PhD, you've learned how difficult large institutions can be and how the natural state is to fall through the cracks and you have to be very active to sort of find your way through them. When you have that skills, you can be very effective in navigating state government in a way that not everybody is. There's, so there's these certain discrete skill sets which no one's going to train you about in a PhD, but which are very portable outside, and I'm, I'm learning that every day. That's a really great uh, overview, and, and I see a lot of connections, yeah, between the research you did and the work you're doing. So your work now is primarily around research and synthesizing findings on how the DOT works in its operations? Right. So I, I probably have half a dozen portfolios, they would call them, sort of larger projects that I'm working on, but just by sort of poking through them, you can get an idea of what it is that I'm actually doing. The major project, the reason I was brought on board by um, the commissioner was the long range master plan, which is federally mandated. Basically, the Department of Transportation every four to five years has to publish a, a data driven performance based assessment of the entire transportation system in the state predictions about its needs and the implications are large because when you're demonstrating use and predicting needs, this is very much about allocating resources. That's really the critical part. So it's important to get this right, even though a lot of it turns out to be pie in the sky because, for example, the state, the master plan we're doing now has a horizon of 2050. So, I mean, we're talking 30 years out here and trying to predict, I mean, on the one hand, it can seem mundane, but on the other hand, when you look at all the things that are happening right now, electric and hybrid vehicles, how we're going to integrate those into the system. The impact of Uber and Lyft and this industry and its interface with public transportation, for better or for worse. The autonomous vehicles, what are they and what happens with them? Drone policy, 
All this stuff is sort of right on the horizon now, but by 2050, it's going to be really core stuff. Anytime you're putting it together a plan that's, that goes out to 2050, you sort of know you're setting yourself up for failure because it's certainly not going to look in 2050 as you anticipate now. But uh, now that I'm inside of it, you also realize how critically important it is to ensure that the people that are allocating funds and you know doing design and planning are paying close attention to everything that's happening now. And this plan is sort of critical to that process. So where I fit in is not as a is not as necessarily a content expert. I'm obviously not an engineer and I don't have a background as a planner, although I'm learning to be one. It's really helping them produce a really vivid document with a strong critical eye and a strong research program so that when it comes out, it has a strong message the research is you know critically engaged but it's also very publicly engaged and that it sort of fosters public engagement and public investment in this system which is it's a critical sort of core function of governance that i think is not always there so it's sort of where i'm fitting in as communications expert i guess you could say but not simply a communications expert that's driving a research program and helping to sort of translate across program areas within a department that has a thousand employees and multiple different departments with different priorities, different prerogatives, different yeah. language. And the payoff for me is while this while I'm cultivating this skill set and using it, I'm also able to learn one content that's fascinating to me, infrastructure built environment and sort of social metabolism that fascinates me. When you understand funding systems, uh, you understand a lot of the way things work and you really understand how to most effectively drive change, right? And that's really, you know, you can do that historically and you can trade it historically, but then you can apply that in the present. That sounds really fulfilling and also like a really nice way to use your skills and, and also expand them in terms of impacting policy and making that kind of change. Can you tell me a bit more about a typical day? If there is such a thing. I'm sure everyone will tell you there's not always, but state government is, is a unique beast, right? In the sense that typically what I find is that three deadlines come at the same time and then you'll go two weeks without a deadline. So, but the wheels of government grind very slowly, sometimes maddeningly so, and yet they do grind uh, and they do have a very powerful forward momentum, which is why it's really uh, imperative for me to sort of learn how to navigate them, right? It can be a powerful force for change if you can learn to navigate it the right way. So yeah. a typical day uh, might involve reviewing documents, having things that I've never done before, right? So we'll put together an RFP or a request for proposal for a big project that we're putting out. And we'll contribute the content on one part of it, which actually describes sort of the conceptual ideas of what we're looking for. You know, we want a consultant to look at X. We want um, a robust sort of research program around this part but then it'll come back to you from contracts and you will have to sort of weave this into the contractual side well, what are the implications of this what can you ask for what can you not ask for so those things while they sound tedious are really important and they can take up quite a bit of time so a good amount of your time is sort of picking through these details right about how do you ask for an innovative project what is innovation right i mean I actually got that question the other day when you're asking consultants to, to propose innovative ideas about the future of transportation in New York, what are you defining exactly, right? And you don't have the academic benefit of leaving it wide open because first of all, there's money involved, but second of all, it's a long project and you're only gonna select one person. And if you don't actually get that clear at the start, you can end up in bad places many years down the road. So yeah. it's not exciting stuff, but a lot of a lot of what the day-to-day -day involves 
involves just sort of picking through things that are on the edge of where my comfort level is and then stepping outside of them and working across groups. I wouldn't say there's an exact day, you know, some days it's meetings, some days it's working quietly in my desk, some days it's doing webinars to sort of learn more myself, but it all, all sort of centers around for me to build my value within the organization, learning how to translate across different groups, figure out what is this group saying, what is their incentive structure, what what is it that they have to show at the end of the day, and how do we thread all these needles at the same time to get a productive product at the end so it's not just an exercise and sort of, um, you know, being careful. An addendum to that is constantly focusing on where is my value in this structure, right, and where am I contributing now, can I contribute in the future. That's a really helpful exercise. So thinking about your value and your contribution in a broader place than academia, I think is helpful in thinking about where you might fit. It's sort of, it's putting the horse in front of the car rather than the other way around. What can you do? And then think about where you can uh, make a contribution. And those research skills are, I'm sure, very helpful in terms of applying them to the workplace that you're in and finding out just what you say, those opportunities where you can add value to the process. And I'm finding that nobody in my chain of command is coming and saying, we really value your research skills here, right? It's never framed in those terms. Did you have any mentors that helped you along the way of changing careers? You know, in this program, we have to find a mentor. So having mentors is really important. But for me, it's important not to idealize a mentor is. Uh, and what I mean by that is I think there's a way in which uh, we're encouraged to seek out that one person who can sort of answer all questions for us, right? It is important, especially for people from non-traditional backgrounds, I think, to see yourself in the process, see someone you can identify with, to see the way that it's done. Same hand, it's really important to be open to the idea that someone is going to be really helpful, for example, in navigating institutions and showing you what that's like. And someone else might be really helpful in showing you, you know, how to ask strong research questions. And someone else might be very helpful in showing you how to teach, right, or how to engage with students. And so in that sense, I would say, I mean, I've had many mentors in different ways. And, and it's been because when you seek out a new skill set, you, you know, you seek out someone that you see as a master or someone that knows it. It's not up to the same person that helps in many ways in, in, in other fields. Uh-huh. So long way around in saying I've, I've had many people that help me and, and are crucial to my place that I got here, including, you know, Herman Bennett, who was my advisor, helped me in a huge amount of ways. But he certainly didn't push me towards public service, right? There's many different kinds of perspectives on it. So Many people have helped me to get here, and I, and I would always encourage people to, to seek out those people in all places, but continue to seek them out, right? Yeah. Um, different people can help you in different, not only phases of your life in this moment, but as you grow, continue to help you in different ways as you, as you move through your career. Yeah, that's great advice, and I think that takes some of the pressure off when people think about finding a mentor, just realizing that it can be many different people at many different times. That's right. You know, the stakes don't have to be as high as you make them. And, you know, I think there's a certain way where that's intimidating to ask somebody, will you be my mentor? Because to be honest, at the beginning of a relationship, most people would say, well, maybe or sure, but not be engaged. So it's best just to start with questions. Just ask a lot of questions, you know, and yeah. when you really find somebody that can answer them for you in a way that's helped you, you're on your way. That's great advice, John. I wanted to touch on skills because you mentioned that you had a lot of background that did prepare you well for some of the 
work you would be doing at the DOT. And then some of the other content specifically was new to you. Did you already have the skills you needed to do this job or were there skills that you had to acquire? It's a combination of both, which I think is going to be in any anywhere you go in any place. And this was true in my graduate studies too, that when you lose the fear of asking a stupid question, that's when you really open the field up for yourself. And so many people stop themselves at that point. So I actually sort of thrive on asking what feels like a stupid question when I'm asking it. But I found in my six-month review at my job, my supervisor had to write about hard skills and soft skills. And one of the skills that she wrote about was an ability to ask clarifying questions of content specialists in a way that was helpful to other people from other groups so that we could all get on the same page. That wasn't what I was intending to do. I was actually asking for myself, but I found that, you know, you tell your students this all the time, but if you have a question, somebody else probably does too. Yeah. Um, but the value of that is not just in asking the question. It's, it's actually an excellent way to get people to reconsider the most basic assumptions that they might not, not have reconsidered in a year or five years or 10 years. And by teaching you again something that they know, they often find something to reconsider, and you gain value too. So I had to cultivate new skills on this job, and it's not something you set out to do. I just ask a lot of dumb questions <laughs> or, or simple questions, as simple as I can think of them, and, and move on from there. And it's amazing to sort of put yourself out there, how quickly you can pick things up and how people respond to it. You know, yeah. everyone loves to about what they know. It's, it's kind of a, a human condition, right? So that's a great point and a counterintuitive one, perhaps, but asking the things that you're not sure about, I think is often right. discouraged because in academia, you have to show expertise. So if you give conferences, what you'll find in my experience is people trying in a conference setting to ask the smartest question. It's, it's a performance like any other, trying to sort of ask the best question and sort of make an impression on everybody in the room. And uh, I've always taken the opposite approach. And it's been successful for me. And, it, you know, it's a different kind of strategy. And, it's, you know, there's drawbacks within academia too. But it's, it's my process, not in the sense that I invented it, but it's, it's what's got me to the place that I am. Also curious, is there anything you miss about academia? What I miss about it is years gone by now, which is sort of the camaraderie of the first phase. You all get traumatized by your first exams and second exams together and, and sort of form a bond around going through a very difficult process and coming out on the other side. So yeah. you know, I'm still in touch with everyone in my cohort. I'm still great friends. And But the nature of this job is that everyone has to go somewhere else afterwards. That is far away the part I miss the most. Second, it might be the ability to sit around and read all day. It might not be much, but it's kind of a pleasure in itself, and it doesn't last for very long, right? You know, remember them forever, because talk about your academic formation. It really is a period of formation. One weekend, um, I was not sure that this program was for me at all. And one semester, and I was convinced that I was going to be dropping out, because it was, I don't want to say too tough. I was committed to toughing it out. I was convinced that I didn't understand anything that I was really not cutting it. And I was convinced I was going to be let go or just not going to make it. And within a few years after that, I was on a Fulbright in Mexico. So it's just, you never know what can happen. You just keep your head down and do the work. And that process happens to everybody. Yeah. But uh, Graduate Center is a huge part of my formation as, as a person, as, as I am today now. You said having a PhD is fairly unique in your workplace. So does your academic credential kind of come with you or have you 
started to separate your working identity from your PhD, or has it benefited you to have that credential? I think it actually has benefited. On the one hand, nobody's seen a doctor walking around the DOT before, right? And so there's just the rarity of it in the sense that I think a lot of people in my office don't even know what my doctorate is in, right? But they know that there's not a lot of them around. So, you know, you take it where you can get it and you sort of enjoy that level of notoriety, I guess. Also, it's, you know, outside of the academy, it's, it's common to sort of wear your credentials everywhere you go in a way that I, it really isn't in the academy. So, you know, everything that goes out with my name on it goes out with PhD after it, um, yeah. which, you know, it's not the way I'm used to sort of signaling the way it happens in the academy because everybody is. So it's weird. It's I'm still navigating that. It's an interesting question you ask because on the one hand, it's still important to me. But when you bring it into a work environment where people aren't really familiar with the work, you know, nobody's asking me about my work or sort of a historical perspective on things. So my identity, it's there, but it's being reshaped on a daily basis because on the one hand, I don't have to advocate to contribute because people are valuing it right from the beginning, which is good. On the other hand, I do have to sort of explain my interventions in many times, right? Why am I asking a, a big framing question about the nature of TNCs and long-term change, right? So... I do have to remind myself that the way in which conversation happens, inquiry happens, now is not the same way and sort of reshape that thing that I learned in school. But it's also helpful. I think, you know, every time you have to tackle the way you do things from another perspective, you, you stand to gain something. So it doesn't go away, mostly because it's important to me. You know, it could. I could sort of let it go and just become the other person, but it's important to me. My work now is understanding the place I'm in, but as soon as I get a handle on it, I'm still a researcher. But certainly the nature of it does change because the application changes, the environment changes, and if you really want to contribute, you have to sort of adapt to this new space, and that's something that happens daily and gradually. It's been far more fulfilling than I anticipated, and, and the work is valued, and it's making a difference every day. That does it for this episode of Alumni Allowed. I want to thank Jonathan for coming on the show to share what it's like to apply your research skills in policy and state infrastructure planning. Remember to stay tuned for more episodes of Alumni Allowed, published every two weeks during the fall and spring semesters. Subscribe on iTunes, and you'll automatically be notified of new episodes. Also check out our Facebook, Twitter, and career planning website at cuny.is slash career plan for more updates from our office or to make appointments with our career counselors. Thanks for listening and see you next time.